So Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15 today. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We are in this portion of Scripture that, to me, is really exciting to Christians. is very exciting. Jesus is giving a sermon to his disciples, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we know it. Now, in this section that we are in, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. Now, I wonder, in your walk, have you ever kind of felt like that? Have you ever been like, Lord, teach me how to pray? Like, I wish I knew how to pray, you know? You ever felt like that? Like sometimes you pray so much and, you know, and then it gets like, I, I wish Jesus would just teach me how to pray. Well, if that's ever been your heart, good news because he taught his disciples how to pray. Um, they asked him in the Gospel of Luke and, you know, right about this same account in Luke's account. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then what he responded to them was this model prayer that he gave them. And it is a model prayer. It's a prayer that we should model our prayers after. It doesn't necessarily, Jesus isn't necessarily, we have to say it verbatim, although that's helpful too. It's a good way to train your kids how to pray, right? I remember I was trained to pray with, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to you. And so you get that memorized, and then you start stepping out on your own afterwards, and God bless grandma, and God bless, you know what I mean? You start praying on your own. And the model prayer here is a good one to train your kids with also, and and to have them kind of get used to the different elements of prayer. We pointed out the last time that we were together, which seems like forever ago, that there are six requests in this prayer. Verses 9 through 10, there are three petitions or requests about God. And then in verses 11 through 13, there are three petitions or requests about us. So in 9 through 10, the, the requests, the petitions uh, that are Godward, you would say, uh, who remembers what they were? That his name be hallowed, or it says, hallowed be your name. That's a request, meaning your name be above all, God. Your name be above all in my house, in my heart, in my life, in my mind. The next one was that his will be done. Now, really, that's the purpose of prayer is God getting his will accomplished through us. A lot of times we approach prayer and we just think it's about our will being accomplished. But really what the scriptures teach is, as a Christian, we're primarily concerned with God's will being accomplished. He has a will, and we just want to be those that he does his will through. We want to see his will be done. And then the last one in verses 9 through 10 is that his kingdom would come. And we talked about the different elements of that, how there's an already aspect and there's a not yet aspect of that. This time we're going to focus on the three requests about us. And you say, well, I think Jeremy went through the same passage last week. He did, but chances are we're going to pull out some different stuff than uh, than what he looked at. And um, 
I don't know, maybe it's like OCD or something like that. I've, I've got to go verse by verse through the whole thing. And, and so he can't take my passage. You know, I'm come back. I need to go through the whole thing, you know. But anyway, we're going to kind of look at a little different angle uh, than he did last time. And the requests we're going to look at this time are very simple. You see them right here. Uh, give me daily food, forgive my sins, lead me not into temptation. So the main points of the sermon are right here. One, two, three, and then these are sub-points, okay? So under the first heading, petitions to be prayed, you have those three requests. Then after that, worship to be offered. And the last point um, is uh, a warning to be received. A warning to be received. Why is this so important? Well, because there's such a misunderstanding and such a lack of true prayer in the Christian church today, right? I heard a pastor talking about the other day. You know, have you guys ever heard of Jim Cimbala, um, Brooklyn Tabernacle? So they have a prayer meeting that they've been doing on Tuesday nights um, for I don't know how many years, 26 years, something like that. And this is New York City, Brooklyn Tabernacle. <laughs> Duh. And the lines form around the church on Tuesday night, for a prayer meeting before the doors open. Lines formed around the block. Two to 3,000 people attend this prayer meeting every single Tuesday. Now, when interviewed about this, a lot of pastors will say, man, it's hard to get people to go to the prayer meeting. How do you do that? And they look to Jim Cimbala for advice. And he says, when people know that God answers prayer, you can't keep them from the prayer meeting. That's very true. Very true. Because God is our Father, we ought to pray boldly to Him for our needs to be met while understanding that unforgiveness in our hearts will hinder these prayers. And that's the warning that we get to. I'll say that again because that's kind of the main point of the message today. If you want to latch a hold of anything, here it is. Because God is our Father, we ought to pray boldly to Him for our needs to be met while understanding that unforgiveness in our hearts will hinder these prayers. That's really what Jesus is getting at. Number one, the petitions to be prayed. Daily food. Look at verse 11 there. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, that was a literal request in these days. I like right away how he starts with the word give us. You notice that? Do you have the sort of relationship? Do, do Christians have that sort of relationship with God? Where, where, are you on those kind of terms with God, your Father, where you can say, give me? Are you on that sort of relationship with him today? Because that Jesus is saying right there, give us. As a father, fathers have responsibilities to their children, don't they? And I'm just to approach him knowing that he's my father, and that's the boldness right there that I have as a child of God, asking for my material needs to be met, right? Give us. This day, now, that's an important lesson there too. Ask for that which will sustain us for the coming day. It's not a daily feast, but daily needs. And he says, our daily bread. Now, literally, this was our daily food in this day and age. But also, you know, the application is our daily necessities. You know, we're kind of far removed from this sort of culture, right? Where in Jesus' time, the prayer just for daily food was like a real thing, right? Like you might not have eaten that day, right? And we're in America, we're very far removed from asking God 
you know, for our daily food. We're just not that dependent on him anymore. Let's put it this way. We don't realize in America how dependent we are upon God. We don't even realize it. But in Jesus' day, prayers for daily food were most common. It was the most common prayer. In Jesus' day, they were taught to depend on God one day at a time. One day at a time. If you know your Old Testament, this reminds you of a story of the account of how God fed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. You guys remember how that happened? Two points, manna, yeah. Who, okay, extra credit. Who knows what manna means? What is it? <laughs> what is that stuff? So picture this, 2.6 million people, an estimate, in the harsh wilderness, and no food. And they're calling out, God, what are we going to do? And so God starts, this bread-like substance is all on the ground in the morning called, what is it? Called manna. And they wake up, and God teaches them a very important lesson. He says, go out every day of the week and gather an omer of this stuff. It's just a container, right? You might say a quart or whatever. You can gather this much a day. And on the day before the Sabbath, you can gather two of them. So you have enough for the Sabbath so you don't have to work on the Sabbath. God was teaching them this principle, you know, right away. Now, here's the thing. If they went out and they didn't gather enough, if they didn't fill up the Omer, who knows what happened? It was already, it was filled up to the top. What happened if they took too much? It was right to the level. They got an Omer and that was it. And what was God trying to teach them? That man doesn't live on bread alone. As Jesus said, right? But God was teaching them this day by day, one day at a time dependence for their needs to be met, right? It's a vivid lesson, you know, of God's care and the kind of relationship that he wants with you. Because I think that you might pray like this. You might say something like this. Give me this month my daily bread so I don't have to check in with you very often. (laughs) Because I can do it myself. You know? And there's this, there's, Jesus tells a parable about a guy like that. He says he had so many crops that he was bursting out of his barns. And he said, you know what? I got to build bigger barns. I got to tear down the ones I have and then I got to build bigger ones. And, uh, you know, he dies that night. And Jesus says, you know, you fool, your soul's required of you this night. And the problem was, was he was rich in material goods, but he didn't have any relationship with God. And he thought the bigger bank account that he had, he thought the bigger retirement that he had, He thought the bigger barns that he had, the more secure he was. But God taught him a lesson that your security isn't in these things that you have because they can get wiped out, you know. It's obvious. I watched a guy work his whole life and save up retirement and get stage four lung cancer, and he was done in two months. And all of the retirement, you know, it didn't, it doesn't, what do you do? The bank, the, the bills at the hospital drained it. You know what I mean? So what God wants you to know and me to know is to turn to him as a heavenly father one day at a time, and trust him to meet our needs, right? And I will tell you that that would put a lot of the pharmaceutical industry out of business right there because all the anti-anxiety pills and stuff like that, like all that stuff would just, you know, so many people would get healed if they would just believe that. If they would just believe what God wants them to believe, healing would happen in their heart, even in this minute. If you just, I'm going to trust you day by day, God, for my needs, one day at a time, healing would happen, right? Guaranteed. Now, So give us our daily bread. 
Now, forgive us our sins. And he says, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The next request is a forgiveness of sins request. Now, they're called debts here, but this is talking about sins against God. Well, why debts? Have you ever heard when somebody goes to jail and then they get out and they say, oh, you know, she's done, she's paid her what? Her debt to society, right? Because when you commit a crime, you break a law, you rack up debt in this sense. It's the very same thing when you and I sin. We rack up a debt against the Lord because we're breaking the Lord's laws, right? And so when we're asking to be forgiven of our debts, we're asking to be forgiven of our sins. And Jesus says it's a good thing, you know, in your prayer to ask God to forgive your sins, right? Because you've racked up a debt against him. Um, I've racked up a debt already today. You know, like I've already sinned today. Um, this is an interesting thing. I talk to a lot of Christians and you say, when was the last time that you were really aware that you sinned? And I don't know. Like, are you kidding me? I sinned like an hour ago. I fell short of the glory of God on the way here today. I mean, this is, there's some blinders on some people, right? They just don't understand. They think they've arrived somewhere that they're not going to arrive in this lifetime. Now, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the need to be forgiven cannot be understated. I want to talk about this for a second. Guilt is an interesting part of human life, right? In a positive sense, guilt can cause you to get right with some relationship that you've messed up, right? You feel guilty about it. Guilt can cause remorse. Guilt can cause remorse when you look at your life and you feel guilty. You can say, I feel remorse and now I, and it can lead to action. And that's a good thing. So guilt has a positive aspect to it. But on the other hand, it's incredibly destructive. See, we collect guilt in our minds over time, right? Our subconscious becomes shaped by it. Our memories become shaped by it, right? We look in the mirror and we see what we did wrong, okay? It can be incredibly destructive. No matter how many, and you know this to be true. You know this to be true. No matter how you try to right your wrongs, you still have a sense of guilt. What do you do with that? We collect guilt in our minds over times, even over the time, even though we make efforts to right our wrongs, we still have an innate knowledge that we deserve punishment. Guilt affects people physically. Guilt is commonly married to regret. Now, how this guilt starts to affect people physically, it affects how they take care of themselves, right? That's, that's one way. How they do their hygiene, how they eat, how they exercise. It affects their posture, certainly, right? It affects people's immune systems. All kinds of studies showing how guilt affects your immune system. There are even some studies that are showing the link to cancers, right? Guilt affects people physically. Guilt affects people's success in life, right? If you're walking around with a guilty conscience all the time, you don't take the opportunities that are coming your way. You don't feel like you can. You know, you're guilty. You're busted. You know, like you're flawed. There's something wrong with you, right? Guilt affects the person's personality. They become calloused, hardened, angry, judgmental. It just makes you sour. Guilt causes people to punish themselves. Not always in conscious ways. Negative self-talk, drug addiction, sinful lifestyles, self-sabotage. Consciously, but more commonly unconsciously, people try to atone for their sins. Some people hurt themselves directly. 
I mean, you look at the phenomenon of people cutting themselves, young people. It's linked to guilt a lot of times. Drug addiction, most times guilt, people punishing themselves. Now, people subconsciously, where they can't get rid of their guilt, they'll start to subconsciously punish themselves. You ever met the person that just keeps over and over getting involved in an abusive relationship? A lot of times that's linked to some sort of guilt. They keep finding this person that's going to give them punishment because deep down they find, and they have a, they say, I don't know, they, they always seem so different in the beginning, but they always end up being the same. I feel like I'm a magnet towards these kind of guys, right? They'll say stuff like that. These things are commonly linked to guilt. The need for forgiveness of sins cannot be understated. In fact, this, you know, I was reading the psychologies, you know, psychologists have picked up on this. A lot of neurotic behaviors, psychotic behaviors are even linked to guilt, not being able to get rid of your guilt. There's this one, uh, they just actually coined this term recently, though, uh, and they call it the Dobby effect. And it's based on a character from Harry Potter. And I don't know anything about Harry Potter, but um, I know that this character there, I've read this description, and, you know, what he would always do is he always had a guilty conscience, and he was always punishing himself. He'd hit himself, and he'd hit himself up against the wall. The Dobby effect. There was actually a study done in Brisbane, and um, what they did was, I'm not going to explain the whole study to you, but the conclusion of it was that when somebody feels guilty, what they were doing is they were setting people up to feel guilty in this study. And then at the end of it, they had people submerge their arm in freezing cold water, and they had another group submerge their arm in warm water, right? And then they interviewed him afterwards, and they didn't really know what was going on. They set this whole thing up. But the conclusion was, is these people that submerged their arm in freezing cold water, they all reported less guilt feelings when they were interviewed after in this study. What scientists concluded was after punishment happened, people felt less guilty, right? Because there was an atonement for the sin. You see where I'm going with this if you know what Jesus Christ did for you. you. You already see where I'm going with this, right? Now, God knows that guilt is a problem. That's why he says in the Proverbs, if you spare the rod, you what? Right, if you don't discipline your children correctly, they don't get rid of the guilt. And then they later on start manifesting the effects of this guilty conscience that they can never get rid of because nobody will spank them or nobody will do anything to punish them. You know, you think I want to be friends with my kid and I don't ever want to do anything like that. You're destroying them by not punishing them. You know, in the Bible, God knows better than humans do. <laughs> That's why he says it, right? But God knows about this, that we have a need for the forgiveness of sins. It's the most important need that a human has, one of them, right? In fact, the pastor uh, he quoted this head of an English mental institution, and here's what the guy said. He said this, if I could, he said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. This huge mental institution um, in England, I could dismiss half of my patients if they knew they were assured of forgiveness. Now, why do you still need forgiveness as a Christian? Well, because when you get saved, you have a new nature that comes inside of you. And that new nature doesn't sin. Praise God. But the problem is, is your old nature is still in there. And they're at war 
with one another. And that old nature, unfortunately, wins the day a lot of times. And so you're guilty. I'm guilty. We have to do something with this guilt, right? You're not going to get rid of that old nature until you die. And praise God, that's something to look forward to, by the way. Like, yeah, I can't wait to die because, well, that's, that's one thing to really look forward to, you know, is that battle will be gone between the good and the evil inside of you. So Jesus says that we daily need to ask God for forgiveness. If you haven't asked God for forgiveness in a long time, you're probably carrying around a bunch of guilt. And it's probably affecting you in maybe one or more of the ways we just talked about. He goes on to say, as we forgive our debtors. Now, the forgiveness we need, our attitude towards this forgiveness, it carries over to how we treat others. You see, the mercy that we need from God, we are to extend to others, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? If I understand what great work Jesus has done for me, he's taken away that guilty conscience, I cannot help but go forgive others. If I'm honest with myself about my sin, if I really am honest about how far I fall short of the glory of God, and I understand that God forgives me of that. He gives me a clean conscience. He's restored my joy, my happiness in life. I can't help but want to extend that to others, right? Your willingness to forgive others is in direct proportion to your understanding of how much you've been forgiven. He says, as we forgive our debtors, the Amplified Version says, letting go both of the wrong and the resentment. Now, I point that out because if you're one of those that says, I will forgive, but I have, but I will never, what, what do they say? Yeah, you haven't forgiven. You haven't. I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. You're still carrying around bitterness and you still haven't forgiven. You haven't released the debt, right? Can you imagine if a, you know, like uh, somebody, like the bank, like you owe the bank money and you go in there and they say, I'm going to foreclose on your house. And then, then they say, you say, oh, have mercy on me. I can't, I can't pay it. And they say, you know what? We're going to forgive the debt. But then two weeks later, they call you and they say, I forgave you, but I haven't forgotten. And you're like, well, <laughs> you, have, you know, you haven't really forgiven if you haven't forgotten. You know, because it says in Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, as far as the east is to the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. And so that's what forgiveness is, right? We're to learn that from God. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do at all. But I want to point out that that's what forgiveness is, is it's to forgive and forget, not to nurse the grudge. Is to let go of the debt, right? When we experience this kind of forgiveness in our relationship with God, the freedom of a guilty conscience, it has a healing power in our relationships with others. With what we just said about guilt and how it affects people, isn't it clear that one of the best things you can do for somebody else is forgive them? So beautiful that the forgiveness of sins is assured to us. Maybe today you don't know that. I want to explain this a little bit. The forgiveness of your sins is assured to you, right? And there's two elements of God's character that you can look at to know that forgiveness of sins is assured, okay? God is just. He's a just judge. And just like a good judge downtown, if somebody went in and they had a whole bunch of offenses and a fine was due, that just judge is going to make sure that that's paid for, right? 
justice. Now, God is just, and he doesn't take your sin and just say, oh, I just, I just won't think about it anymore, because that wouldn't be just. Can you imagine if a judge did that downtown? You go in there, and, and some criminal's in there with this long record, and the judge says, hey, I just won't even think about that anymore. Just, just take that folder and put it. You'd think, what a judge that is. But God is a perfect, just judge. And so he doesn't just brush your sin aside. He says, this sin has to be paid for. And the only way for this sin to be paid for, because it's an eternal offense, is with an eternal payment. And so he manifests himself in a human form, and he comes here as Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and he dies a death on the cross that pays that debt in full. And also because of God's justice, demanding that your sin be completely paid for, completely taken care of God's justice, right? He took care of it. And you can count on that. Forgiveness of sins is assured to you because God is just. Because God is just, he demanded payment for that sin, and that sin has been paid for appropriately, right? Now, here's the other thing you want to think about. God is faithful to his word. And his word says, if you will ask him for forgiveness of sins, that he is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, right? So God is just in demanding full payment of the sin, and he's faithful to say that if you will believe in what Christ did, that payment of that sin will be applied to your life. You can rest assured, you know, here today of the forgiveness of sins. I don't know what I would do without that. By and large, I find two groups of people when it comes to this sort of conversation, people that get it and people that don't get it. And God, as I stand up here as a pastor week after week, I don't know how to make anybody get it. So it's only up to him to, to do that. It's only up to him to work in your conscience to help you to understand this, right? There's relief for your guilty conscience. There really is. It can be forgiven. And I pray that God makes that real to your heart today. Because all these other things that you're trying to do, it's not working. It's making you sick. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you can be assured of that forgiveness today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there's a debate about what this prayer request actually means. Let me give you the different views here. So, don't tempt us to sin. Is that what he's saying? Don't tempt us to sin. Is it pray to God that God wouldn't tempt us to sin? No, because James 1.3 says that God doesn't tempt anybody, right? James 1.13, um, God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. You guys know that verse. Um, is he saying, don't let us go into tests and temptations? I don't know. It says in uh, the book of Deuteronomy that God allowed Israel to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years to what? To, to test them. How about God with Abraham? Take your son, your only son, right? You guys know the story. Why did he do that? To test him, to see if he loved him. That's a crazy test. <laughs> so I don't think that's what Jesus means where you say, lead us not into temptation because God allows us to get into situations where we're tempted and tested, right? Another way to look at this, another angle at it is what the NLT, the New Living Translation has it. They translate this verse where it says, and do not let us yield to temptation. In other words, their angle is when you're in the temptation, God, don't let me fail when I'm in the temptation. Don't let me, uh, you know, give myself into it. Another pastor put it like this. He said, maybe a better way to understand it is not don't lead us into temptation, but don't leave us in temptation. I think that might be where Jesus is coming to with this um, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says this. 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God will let you go into situations of tempting and testing, not to show him what's in your heart. He knows what's in your heart. And so you will see what's in your heart, right? But he says he won't let you be tempted above what you can bear, but he'll provide the way out. You're grinning and bearing it. I don't want to sin, Lord. I don't want to sin. Well, guess what? God has provided a way out of that. And that's a promise that, you know, we cling to as Christians. So maybe this request has to do with that. Lead us not into temptation, you know, kind of think along the lines of, let me be the person that takes the way out when I'm in temptation, the one that you've promised. I think a good example of this is in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, right? And he prays three times, Lord, take this cup from me. You're familiar with the scene. What did he tell his disciples before he went and prayed? He said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, right? I think that's the same sort of request here. But Peter failed at that, didn't he? Right? Because it's only a short while after that, that Peter's denying Jesus three times, right? So if you put that together with what Jesus is saying here, I think Peter should have prayed this, right? Lead us not into temptation. I think that's the whole, what he's getting at. God doesn't tempt you to sin. God will allow your faith to be tested, but you should have the heart and I should have the heart of God when I am tempted and tested. Don't leave me in this. Don't let me falter. Don't let me go the way of the evil one. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. You know, you and I are frail, right? He who stands, take heed lest he fall. You think you stand, take heed lest you fall. If you think that you're like strong spiritually, you better take heed because the Bible says you're in danger of falling at that point. There aren't super Christians, right? There's a super God and there's a super Holy Spirit that'll strengthen us so long as we understand that his power is made perfect in our weakness, right? And that, this prayer request here is a good uh, reminder of our weakness before God. First of all, we're reminded of our dependence. Give me food. <laughs> Forgive me of my sins because there are many. And please, when I'm tempted, don't let me fall. Don't leave me in this temptation. Worship to be offered. Now, those are the three petitions. Look at the worship to be offered at the end of verse 13. He says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Jesus teaches that prayer involves worship, right? It starts with worship. Hallowed be your name. My heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We're worshiping the Lord. We're giving him all the glory. And then it ends with glory. Uh, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you notice this verse, part of this verse wasn't in your Bible. And um, I'll speak to that just a little bit. Um, you know, there's a debate whether this was in this, this little section of this verse was in Matthew's original or not. Um, the debate boils down to this, okay? And, and if you're not a Bible nerd, forgive me for the next few seconds. Don't check out. Don't leave, you know, because... We're going to do some Bible nerd talk here for a minute. Um, but uh, the debate boils down to this, okay? Uh, this part of this verse is not found in Codex Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. Now, don't worry if you don't know what that means. 
It's not found in those two ancient manuscripts, Greek manuscripts. However, it is found in the Textus Receptus, and it is found in the majority text, okay? Early church fathers, some of them omit this part in their writing, and some of them have it in there. Chrysostom, for one, right around 400 AD, very early church father, he expounds this in his commentary, just like it's the very words of Jesus. All that to be said, I trust the New King James Version and the, the King James Version. It comes from the Textus Receptus, from the majority text. That's the Greek text used to create these translations. It's in there. And a number of church fathers quote it. So in my position, I don't have the authority to say whether it's in there or not. I'm going to take it that it's in there. Obviously, these translators believe that it is in there. And you know, it's neither here nor there. But the argument for the other side was, when this prayer started to, be using, started to be used in liturgy in the early church service, that a scribe just helpfully added it in there. And uh, that's the argument for it, that once this became a prayer used in church, uh, then it just got added um, at that point. So that's really the debate. Not in Codex Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. Um, notice the root word of Vaticanus. Right. So... But it is in the Texas Receptus in the majority text. Now, this statement brings us back to the beginning. Your kingdom come. That is our priority is his kingdom. The power that we live and serve in is it's all his and all the glory, praise, and honor and worship belong to him. And I like that he ends it with that word amen, right? You know what the word amen means? So be it. Let it be. Now, when you end a prayer, this is one of those words that becomes Christians just, it falls out of their mouth and they, they, we lose the sense of how cool this word is over time. I, th- I heard a pastor one time and he said rather than, he was preaching in this one church, African-American church, black church, and um, rather than say amen, you know, during the preaching, like he would preach and like everything he would say, they would say, make it plain, make it plain, you know, instead of amen. Like, you know, some congregations you'll be preaching, and they'll be like, amen, amen. But he said this church, they kept saying, make it plain, make it plain, preacher. You know, like, that's awesome. I love that. He said, he, said it t- he was taken aback. He was like, yeah, yeah, make it plain. That's what we're going to do here, you know. But amen is like, so be it. It's your will, God. It's up to you. And you know what? I trust you. I trust you that your will is going to be done in my life and your name's going to be hallowed and you're going to provide my daily food and you're going to forgive me of my sins. I'm assured of that here today. And God, that you're not going to lead me into some place where you're not going to help me get out of it when I'm tested. So be it. Trust it. I trust it, God. I trust it into your hands. That's an ultimate declaration of the trust of God. When you put amen on the end of your prayer, I hope you think about that this week. It's an ultimate. I trust you, God. So be it. Your will be done. Not my will be done. Thy will be done, right? Whatever that looks like. A warning to be received, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a startling warning. Now, what is clear about this is that forgiving others is not optional for the Christian. Forgiving others is not optional for the Christian. That's one thing that's clear about this. there is a lot of debate over this passage as well, what it means. So to answer it, let's take this in two parts. There's two questions we're going to ask of this text. 
First of all, what kind of forgiveness is Jesus talking about here? What kind of forgiveness is he talking about? And the second question we're going to answer, what is meant by God will not forgive you? Now, is this talking about salvation being predicated based on our forgiveness of others? Because I've heard some people say it that way. Well, if you're holding a grudge towards somebody else and you're not forgiving, you can't be saved. It says right here. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, what that would do then is that would make Ephesians 2, 8, 9 not true. For it is by grace you've been saved by faith, which is not of your works. It's not of any of your own doing so that nobody may boast, right? Um, The disciples asked Jesus one time, what does it mean to do the work of the Lord? And they say, it's to believe on the one who he sent to believe. The Philippian jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household, you'll be saved. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes, right? So if we're saying that salvation is contingent upon me forgiving other people, then we would be adding works to salvation, right? So I don't think that's what he's saying here. You can't ever take a verse of the Bible out of the context of the Bible, right? You will avoid much false teaching if you always leave the Bible in context of the Bible, right? No, so I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he is talking about is the forgiveness that we receive. It's not the forgiveness we receive the first moment of salvation where we're, we've received the remission of sins. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, that record of sin and everything past, present, and future is laid upon Christ. You are what the Bible calls justified. An easy way to understand that is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, God the Father declares you righteous, just as if you'd never sinned, just as if you'd always obeyed. That's such good news. I can't believe you're not doing a cartwheel when you hear that. Some of you are. In your, in your mind, you're like, yes! The best news. I don't think he's talking about that, right? Uh, do you remember when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples? And he got to Peter. And... Peter said this, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, he was, you're the Lord. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. But you love bipolar Simon Peter, right? And here he comes. But Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my whole body. And my, my hands, my hands and my head. Then Jesus said to him, he who is, now listen carefully, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas. He who has been bathed, justified, only needs to have his feet washed, right? Because when you walk around with your feet, they get dirty. And when you live this Christian life, even though you're a Christian, you get dirty because that old nature wins the day a lot of times. And Jesus says it pretty plainly. If you don't allow him to wash your feet, you don't have a part with him. You don't have fellowship with him. 
that might explain the spiritual condition of somebody today. I know I'm a Christian, but I'm not excited about Jesus Christ whatsoever. Not excited about the Word. I don't have joy. Yet, if you were to ask me, I would say, yes, I believe and I'm going to heaven, but I don't have any relationship with Jesus. Oh, he says right here, if you don't allow me to wash you, you have no part with me. When was the last time you came to Jesus for washing? When was the last time you confessed your sins to him? That's the, the kind of forgiveness. So that was the first question I wanted to ask is what kind of forgiveness is he talking about? Right? If you don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive you, you know? And I think that's the sort of forgiveness he's talking about is that daily cleansing that you need. How about 1 John 1, 9, right? If we will confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? That's a daily thing for the Christian. We do that often. It happens all the time. It happens multiple times a day. Thank God, right? Have you ever heard that verse called the Christian bar of soap? <laughs> that's what they call it. The Christian bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9. Good memory verse. Uh, for anybody that, you know, needs to be reminded. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If we withhold forgiveness from other people in our vertical relationship with God, or in our horizontal relationships with others, if we, if we withhold forgiveness from horizontal plane relationships, then God's going to forgive, or he's going to withhold forgiveness from us, right? In other words, if you're nurturing grudges towards people in any way, shape, or form, you're not going to have joy in your salvation. You're not going to be excited to sit down at the table with your father, you know? Think about that. When you, when you were young and you were getting in trouble and you knew you were in trouble, did you want to sit down at the dinner table and look at your father straight in the face? No way. You were hiding. Now, there are people out there that they feel like they're having to try to hide from the Lord, and it's because you haven't come to him for cleansing and washing. That's what you need, and he's willing to do it. But make sure that you don't withhold the very same mercy and grace that you need from God from other people. Because if you withhold grace, mercy, and forgiveness, your Heavenly Father is not going to give it to you. No. I really like what Jeremy said last week. Remember what he said when he came to this verse? I'm not trying to elevate him. He's not here. Doubtful he'll watch this video. But when a Bible teacher comes to a passage and they get convicted of their sin, and the guy said that he had to go, this convicted him, he had to go across town and go to somebody's house and ask for forgiveness because he had been withholding. You know what I mean? This, I love a Bible teacher like that. They sit under the text all week long. They realize they're just as jacked up as anybody else. God busts them with the Holy Spirit, and they go and they take action and they do something about it. I love that. That's what Christianity, that's what this is about. You know, the Bible speaks to you. You hear God's Spirit speaking to you, and it leads to action in your life, right? And that warning should cause action. Now, God wants closeness with us all, and he wants fellowship, and that's why Jesus gives this warning. He wants to be with you. It's like a father that longs to be with his children. He wants to be in fellowship with you. He wants you to have a clean conscience. He wants you to go through life joyful. And he's provided it all for you in Jesus Christ. And the table's, like the table's open. You can come sit there and he wants to look at you face to face. 
Maybe that involves getting rid of some grudges that you have towards people. Maybe that involves just coming and asking for forgiveness of your own sins. So, because God is our Father, we ought to pray to Him boldly for our needs, all while understanding that unforgiveness in the heart hinders these prayers. So, I want to conclude again by looking at verse 13. We're looking at that, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. Maybe today you've never received the forgiveness of your sins ever at all, and you've never received uh, Jesus Christ as your Savior. If God is working in your conscience today, and you know it's your time to give yourself to the Lord, you know that today. You're under the searchlight of the Scripture. The Holy Spirit's, you know, this is your day. Let me tell you, when people give their life to the Lord, it's not because when it really happens, it's not because the pastor was eloquent and got them all whipped up into a frenzy and a bunch of emotional music was playing and all that stuff and all these people are coming forward. Not saying that's bad. I mean, Billy Graham crusades, all that stuff's great. But the same thing happened at a Billy Graham crusade that happens in a room like this is the Holy Spirit is working on you through your conscience. And you know it's time to get right with God. You haven't received his forgiveness. As in the illustration with Peter, you've never been bathed. You're still under the wrath of God. You're still, you know, the debt of sin has not been taken care of in your life because you've never received Jesus Christ. I want to give you that opportunity today. And what you do is you simply take that conviction that's going on in your heart and you, you say, Holy Spirit, I realize you're convicting me and you admit to God, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your glory. I've failed to give you the glory that you deserve. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen. I've hurt people. I've been unforgiving to people. I haven't always done the right thing. You know, all of us are really in that category here. And when you come to Jesus Christ, it starts by admitting that. It starts by getting honest with yourself and honest with God. You know, God already knows everything anyway. And you're just not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. And so you admit that to God. I'm sick of this life. Joyless dumping on myself, a guilty conscience. I'm sick of it. I want to be cleansed. I want to be set free. I want Jesus to be my Savior. And he'll give that to you as a free gift because he loves you. It's that simple. If you really believe, if you really believe this, God will set you free. And he'll heal your conscience right here and right now. Your life will change forever. Now maybe as a Christian, you've never... Um, you know, you've kind of drifted from God and the excitement in your walk with him is gone and maybe you're complacent a little bit and you're not experiencing life in the light. Is this no doubt because you have not come humbly to him for forgiveness and cleansing? Say, so I know I'm going to heaven. Okay, but where's your joy? Where's your zeal for the Lord? Where's your zeal for his word? Where's your love for his people? These are the things that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian. Is it not because you haven't come to him and asked him for forgiveness? If you want fellowship with him, if you want that fellowship restored, you want to sit at the table and be able to look at him face to face, here it is. Turn to 1 John, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and I'll close with this. First John, right next to his brothers, uh, Second John and Third John, um, Little John, no. 
Turn to 1 John chapter 1, please. And I'd like you to look at verses 5 through 9. I'm going to read them. If you want the fellowship in your relationship with the Lord restored today, you know you're Christian, you know you believe, but you want the fellowship restored, this is a very helpful passage. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have received, or which we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's how fellowship is restored right there. Father, we thank you for your word here today, and we thank you for this instruction of how to pray. And Lord, may we pray like this. May you help us. Jesus, we are desperate for your help in our lives. As the Bible says, the help of man is useless. And so we all come to you aware of who we are and aware of our great need for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful to you that you want fellowship with me that you're for me. The Bible says you're for me, so who could be against me? I can't even wrap my mind around it, that you want fellowship with me. And I can tell you for certain today, Lord, that I don't know where I'd be if you didn't clean my conscience. I have no idea how out of control my life would be, how sick I would be. I pray for the person here hurting today or people that need a touch from you. God, help them. Help them take that next step into you. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.